It's good to see your faces. I think it's three years ago I was last at Gaisley. Many things have happened since that time. It's a little difficult for me to be at Gaisley because that is in Britain. I often speak in English, but to speak to British people is, is different because you know the language so good. It's no problem to speak in English in, in Czech Republic or Poland or wherever. They don't know the language that good. So I try to hope you'll forgive me when I make some mistakes. Our ministry back in Denmark is mainly a magazine ministry, but more and more to become a preaching ministry too, and that part is called Advent Ministry. We do our ministry in, um, on basis of donations, but we work for our own living, so um, we'll be back working next week, and then during the weekends we are preaching. Sometimes it's rather busy. We met Richard and Jay at the Grand Union Canal. We were having a break there for a week. Next weekend I'll be in Holland, then in Denmark for two weeks, then in Czech Republic and then Germany, then we're over in September. It's good to share the Word of God with God's people, but also to see what's happening. And I guess that is the thing we are going to talk about today, how we are able to follow the Lord. The subject that Baptists should have had for you was called Preparation for the End Time. I've changed that subject a little. I've changed it to Living in the End Time. Living in the End Time. And I want to ask you some questions in the beginning. I have been in Britain a few times since I was at Gaisley, down in London, up in Birmingham and several other places. But since it's three years ago, the question might be good to ask yourself and myself, what has happened in our lives since we saw each other last time? Has there been any changes? Are we still walking in the newness of life? And the press on this issue should be, are we still walking? Because walking is walking, it's not standing still. So ask yourself the question often, what has changed? I'll tell you, when the message started, the message that we belong to, the Seventh-day Adventist message started back in the middle of the 18th century, a lot of things changed for those people who were involved in that. This morning I was reading some chapters from the book of Life Sketches of Ellen D. White. If you have, don't have that book, look into that book and borrow it from somebody. Life Sketches give you some th idea of what happened in the lives of these people that certainly heard something new that touched their heart. Some of the chapters around what happened in 1843, 1844, 1845. Do you remember those chapters, the names of those chapters? The visit of the pastor is one of the chapter's names. That was Ellen D. White and her family getting a visit from the Methodist pastor 
telling her to stop going to some special meetings. Another chapter is called The Meeting in a Certain Hall, because there could not be other places. Those chapters have a special meaning for me, because one day, I guess it was back in 1978, I found myself hospitalized on intensive care down in Denmark with an acute ulcer. I had been working for eight years as a full-time teacher at the Seventh Adventist School, and then certainly I found myself there. I had been working for the good things, I think so, fighting some battles, and then I was laying there, and then the thought came into my mind, read two things. Read Life Sketches of Ellen D. White, and then read the life of Jesus in the Gospels, and underline what the sufferings of Jesus was, and then get to know something of real life. When real life touches you, something has to happen with you. Back in 1844, these people were met with challenges. The challenge is if they should keep walking or if they should go back and stand still. Praise God, some of them did keep walking. That's why the Adventist movement started. I also want to share with you some quotations, three quotations about the topic of primitive godliness. You probably know that there are several quotations telling us that at the end of time, the real Christianity will go back to primitive godliness. And this will cause a revival that has not been seen, seen among us since apostolic times. You find the first quotation I want to quote from you in Great Controversy 464, <coughs> where it says, Before the final visitation of God's judgment upon the earth, there will be among God's, among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. What is that revival all about? A little further down in the same sentence, he goes on and says, The enemy of soul desires to hinder this work, and before the time of such a movement shall come, he will endeavor to prevent it by introducing a counterfeit. Now, there's one thing I want to, to, to have you to notice in this quotation. It says, before the time of such a movement. She is talking about a movement inside the movement. Bringing the movement back to apostolic times. And the enemy of souls wants to prevent that. She is not talking about a new church being established. She is not talking about a new organization being established. She is talking about a movement inside the Lord's people. Now, if you go on to page 478, Great Controversy, she continues this thought and says, It is only as the law of God is restored to its rightful position 
that there can be revival of primitive faith and godliness among his professed people. So it's only when the law is restored. Was that what was, was in the sentence? No. The law had to be rightly restored, meaning that there is a wrongly way of restoring the law. And if you go into the next quotation, which is found in Acts of the Apostle, page 387, she says, In the apostolic times, he, meaning Satan, led the Jews to exalt the ceremonial law and reject Christ. Here she is talking about the wrong way of restoring the law. It's not only restoring a law that we need, but we need to restore it a rightful way. Think that over, what it means to restore the law in a rightful way. And when we do that, we will go back to primitive godliness and the final events will happen. I guess that is the main thing of my presentation for you. So then go into the Bible of John, chapter 14. Verse 26, and that's the verse you know. But the comfort of which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things into your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let your heart not be, be troubled, not your heart be troubled, neither let you let it be afraid. The Comforter will come, and he will teach you all things. There's a quotation on this issue found in the book Acts of the Apostles, page 5.1. That's actually a good chapter to read. Holiness is not rapture. It is an entire surrender of the will, of, will to God. It is living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is doing the will of our Heavenly Father. It is trusting God in trial, in darkness as well as in light. It is walking by faith and not by sight. Here's some wonderful words. Holiness is not rapture. It's not thing, something happening automatically. It's happening by a constant walking, by faith and not by sight. What does that mean? What does it mean to walk by sight or to walk by faith? Most people want to walk by sight because then they can see where they are going. But that is not the way the Lord wants to walk. Some feel a little uncomfortable 
when they do not walk by sight. And still, the Lord asks us to walk in a different way. Chapter 16, the same book. Verse 12. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Walking is getting more and more things to know. Be taught more and more things and adapting them into your lives, into my life. And then gradually we will be able to bear them. Something about living is to be able or willing to bear what is coming. If the, the apostles had been more willing, had had an other spirit, a receiving spirit, they might have got more knowledge and they might have been further on the way that they actually were. When you go to Luke chapter 13, verse 24, you have the famous verse about the narrow way. Luke 13, 24. And Ellen D. White comments on that, and she says, it is not because they could not be saved, but it's because they would not be saved in God's appointed way. Now, are we willing to walk in God's appointed way that is the question. That is a very serious question when we are talking about living in times like these. Jesus knows about this. Therefore, it's interesting to see the last words of Jesus because he left for heaven. You find some of them in Acts chapter 1, 7 to 10. You find them in Matthew 28, 1920. You find them in the end of Mark and the end of Luke. And what do you find? We don't need to quote these verses. But you find a lot of promises. That's the way the Lord works. By giving us promises. He promised to give them power. In Acts, he promised to give them a blessing. In Luke, he promised to be with them all the way until the end, even until the end, it says in Matthew. That's the Lord we are serving. And then he gives a little reminder to Peter when you go back in Mark and in John. He says, it is not up to you to judge. It is not up to you to condemn. You should live of the promises. You should live my, under my blessings, under my promises to be with you. You should live by faith, not by sight. It is not up to you to decide. 
and he's talking about who should be with me. There's one thing that for the last half year has been coming over and over back to me, and that is the question of how we handle each other and how we are walking and which way we are walking. And over and over, the sentence about Jesus meeting the, the woman in adultery is coming to back to me. When all the others had all their fine ideas of what has happened, Jesus was silent. And when Jesus was getting a chance to speak, he only said, I do not condemn ye. And then he gave, he gave her promises. I think that's the need that we need, that we have to learn to live from promises and not live to what about for what we are seeing. Another voice that is coming back to my mind is the verse about being afraid, being not worrying. I want to give you three quotations on the word worry. Do you say worry? Worry? There he is. The first is from Reflecting Christ, page 349. When brought into trial, we are not to fret or to worry. We should not rebel or worry ourselves out of the hand of Christ. We are to humble the soul before God. Do you notice that sentence? We are not to worry ourselves out of the hands of Christ. Wasn't that what happened to Peter when he was walking on the water? Another quotation taken from Manuscript Releases, Volume 3, 368. It is not the work that kills, it is the worry that kills. Some of us knows that from our practical life, but do you know that from your spiritual life? It is not the work that you're doing for the Lord that kills. It's when you start worrying about the consequences. It's when you start walking by sight that the killing process started. It's when you start dying. It's when you start going back or stop walking or standing still. Last day went, page 8.3. You may weep over the result of wrong causes of others, but do not worry. The work is under supervision of the Blessed Master. There is a difference between weeping and godly sorrow and then worry. I know that we have invented a, another name. It started back in Australia in the middle of the 70s when somebody was called the CB Brethren. And we invented the word, word concerned. It's good to be concerned as long as you don't mean that it means to be worried. 
No. It, the quotation says here, You may weep over the result of the, work of, uh, of the wrong course of others, but do not worry. What is the difference between weeping and worrying? Now, the text from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 to 11, tells us that ye sorrow to repentance, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh to death. There is a personal weeping over the sins that we are experiencing or seeing or getting to know of in our own lives. We have to have a godly sorrow for those things and it must lead us to repentance. But when we see sins and wrongdoings of others, does it lead to the same thing? Or does it lead you to start condemning? To start lifting your fingers? Or lead us to other things? What does it mean that the, the, the godly sorrow in relation to others should lead you to repentance? For me, the text tells me that when I feel godly sorrow in my own life, in relation to my own life, or in relation to others, it must lead to doing something, acting. In relation to my own life, I must repent. In relation to the others, I must do something to help them. In another quotation I could not find so quickly, Andy White says, Don't raise a finger about other people's wrongdoings if you don't have the spirit of being willing to die for them. What about dying for the conference president? What about dying from your enemy? That's something to think about. That godly sorrow must lead to action, but not to condemning. When you come to Christ, you get peace. Peace within your heart and trust that he will take you through. He that begun the good work will also finish it. Every text in the Bible talks about the that talks about trouble also talks about God having control. Even when it talks about the beast in Revelation, it, takes, it says that I gave them permission to have the power in Revelation 17, 17, until the word of God is fulfilled. God is having control. 
Sometimes we think that having control means bringing the things back to the thing they were before. That is not having control. Stop thinking that you can figure out where the, where the road leads to. When God is talking about control, of knowing where the road is going, he is talking about that he will take it through to that purpose he had made for before that happened. As he says, says to the disciples in Desire of Ages when they ask, why should, should this happen to John the Baptist? Why couldn't he experience what we are experiencing? He was sitting there in the jail, soon losing his head. And then Jesus said, if John had known what was come, had to come, he would have chosen exactly the same way. So when God is promising that he has control and we can trust that without worrying, without, without concerning of that part, he means he has control of bringing the, th the case to the end that he had figured out it should end. It doesn't mean that he will bring the things back to it were. Very seldom God does that. Why? Because the things did not work as it were. Simply of that reason. Therefore God has many ways. Therefore God is a, is a big God. He has seen a way we doesn't see. So we should stop dreaming of how the world were. But only looking forward. That's a big problem for somebody called historic Adventist. Because they think that the history back then was good. It wasn't. There might be good things back there. But when God promised that he has control over the Seventh-day Adventist church, he doesn't mean that he'll bring it back to the thing it was in 1920s or 1930s, or whatever date you would mention. It means simply that he will bring the church, the Seventh-day Adventist people, back on that place where it belongs and doing the purpose that he had, he had meant for it. He will finish the course as he began back in 1844. But how he will finish, we do not know. We have a glimpse of it. But maybe the Lord has the same to say to us, I have many more ways to tell you about, but you cannot bear them now. That was my experience, our experience. When I first met Richard back in Holland, I don't think we had figured out what would happen a little later. In our lives, all around us. And I think both of us praised the Lord that we didn't know about these things. And then the light has come a little further and we've seen a little more things and certainly we start to think that now we should know the way all the way through. But still, we're in the same position. We don't know the way. 
I am a Seventh-day Adventist, but I'm not a historic Adventist longing for the back time. I long for the promises of God, of the day when he will finish his work in the most wonderful way that we don't have a, only a, might have only a glimpse of. Peace to have peace and trust may never leave you standing still. There's nothing called standing still or returning to back old days. I don't know what I do think about the name old-fashioned camp meetings. I want to think about the future camp meetings. We are not conservative people. We are progressing people. There's a big difference. Ellen D. White had a lot to say about wrong things about the liberals, but she certainly had a lot to say about the wrong things about the conservatives too. They are hindering the work of God. Now let me give you a statement. A statement from five testimonies. Seven one. The word is go forward, discharge your individual duty, and leave all the consequences in the hands of God. If we move forward where Jesus leads the way, we shall see his triumph. But if we stop thinking or what consequences we can figure out, we will not see the triumph. In the Sarve Ages, page 121, she says, two things you have to do, listening and do the command of God, and then trust him. But it's human to go a little further, push the boat a little, help a little, finding out and figuring out what's next. We don't know what's next. The Lord knows, and I trust in that. And I have peace with that. And I don't get any ulcers now. There's no reason for that. I want to give you some practical examples. Now, how long time do I have, Richard? It's quarter past ten. Fine. Well, I don't know. Three examples taken from Acts. And you know the examples. Acts 7, 8, and 9. Three persons are mentioned here that I want to talk, to, talk about or let you think about. The first one is Stephen. Stephen was an elder in the church. And when I say church, I'm not talking about church organization. In the church, local church there, he was an elder. Do you think that Stephen had figured out what would happen after his talk to those Pharisees? He was put in jail and then he started to talk. He simply started to talk about the gospel. 
He didn't know that that would be his last talk. He didn't know that the same day he would be stoned. He just followed on. One word took the others. How do you think things would have been looked like at that time? Stephen was preaching there in chapter 7. It was a long sermon. Most of chapter 7 is, is talking about that sermon. How do you think the eyes were that he was looking into? They were certainly not sleeping. They were getting more and more angry. Some people have left the room. Do you think Peter, uh, Stephen's thought, I better stop now. Well, he would have stopped as the Lord had told him. But he was under the guidance of the Lord. And he didn't think, standing there thinking about consequences. That is one of the reasons I am trying to put up the manuscript. I don't have guidelines. As soon as we start figuring out what's next, we get into problem. Stephen continued talking. And he ended on his knees praying. At that very moment, the people saw the glory of God. And that was enough for, for Stephen. Then he had fulfilled the purpose and God has used him to what purpose he could be used. And Stephen missed a lot of things after that. He didn't see the church grow. There's many things he didn't see. But do you think that Stephen in, the, in heaven would go to Jesus and say, why did you put me to death so early? I would love to continue a little more. It was just going now, and then you put me to death? No. Stephen was satisfied. He was resting in the Lord. The next, the next chapter, chapter 8, tells about Philip. Philip was walking there, and then certainly, I don't know how it happened, but anyway, he got to know that he had to walk very fast to a certain person that was traveling in, in a wagon. And he went there. A little later, in that conversation, you find Stephen, uh, or you find Philip, explaining the gospel. That couldn't be any wrong, explaining the people the gospel. He was sitting alone with a man, opening the Bible, telling about Jesus in the Bible. And then certainly in that, ex in that experience, the man in the wagon says, Please stop the wagon. Here's some water. Couldn't I be baptized? How was Philip's reaction? Did he begin thinking about the consequences of doing a baptism without any more, more, more things? No. He had stopped having that kind of mindset. He was a man wishing to be making a, a covenant with the Lord. Wouldn't that be wonderful? What would have happened to that man if Philip had said, well, I've never done that before. And there might be not enough water here, a little dirty. 
No, Philip did not say that. Philip did not think in that way. You find exactly the same situation in the next chapter 9. I don't know how you pronounce that word. But the man Ananias that Saul was led to. You can read the stories yourself when you get back. It's interesting to see all through the book of Acts how the apostles, how the elders, how the church members acted to God's leading. They were willing to walk the way the Lord leaded and leave the consequences in the hands of the Lord. And something happened. Something great happened. It seems as when we, may, we as humans start thinking in our ways and organizing in our ways the work stops. That's something to think of. Walking the narrow way. You remember that story? Remember that story from early writings? Isn't it there? When she talks about the walking of God's people. Have you noticed specific things about that walking? The path they were walking on. What happened to the path further up the road? It got narrow, that's one thing, but it disappeared. They couldn't see it. The fog was coming, they couldn't see it. They get more and more light. They were, their conviction became stronger and stronger. Their belief, their trust, their peace with the Lord was stronger. They left the things behind. There was a reformation in their lives. And still they could see less and less of the road. That's something I think we have to, to think over. That God's way is contrary to man's way. We believe that the more we get to know, the more we understand and see. But the Lord's way is different. The more you get to know, the more you don't bother about seeing anything. I remember a letter I got several years ago from Norway. I don't know why the Lord gave me that letter, because I didn't understand that way of thinking that time. But a sister got the magazine up there. It was way up in Norway, so I couldn't visit her north of Polar Circle. She was having a health store there and has certainly been fighting several years with the Lord. You can imagine having a health store in the, in the most northern town, city in Europe, where there's no plants, nothing. The sun is shining two weeks, two once a year, all the day. And there she was having a vegetarian health store. People must think, think that was stupid. So he he's certainly has had some experience with the Lord. And in the letters she was sharing this experience with me. And then she said... Strange word at that time for me. He said, walking with the Lord is, is, is strange. You don't know what is coming tomorrow. 
I was then a man that was used to be able to know and figuring out what's coming next. That's the way we do in political things. That's the way we do on board meetings. That might be one of the reasons for the also at that time. Trying to fight the way we think we should fight. And the more and more we fight, the more distressed we become. And then this lady was called, talking about her experience that walking with the Lord is strange. You don't know what's coming tomorrow. Now, you know what text that leads me to in the Bible? That leads me to a text talking about faith. Now, what text is that? It's Hebrews chapter 1. Chapter 11, verse 1, where it's talking about faith. Anybody can that by, remember that by heart? That was one of my mother's favorite texts. She mentioned that many times. I didn't understand what she was talking about because I thought this text was strange. Not Now faith is substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's what we are talking about. And then the questions come back to us. Are we walking in faith or are we walking in sight? How are our walking in these end times? I believe to talk about how our walking is more down on earth. And sometimes we need this. It is walking with peace, in trust. It is walking under the blessings and the promises of God. It is walking without being worried. It is walking without putting your own questions and your own answers to the Lord. Sometimes when we have question sessions in these meetings, now I hate those question sessions, I try to get them rid of them. No, most question sessions is not questions, it's commenting where the people ask a question to just to say what they, their own answer. That's sometimes, that's sometimes the same thing we do to the Lord. We ask a question to the Lord, but we have the answer before. The Lord doesn't work that way. He doesn't ask us to create questions and also ask us to give the answers or figure out the answers. If we haven't been shown any wrong things in what we are doing and what we are doing at the moment, we can keep undoing it. Because the Lord has promised by his Holy Spirit to convict victors of sin and of judgment and of righteousness. And if the Lord doesn't convict us of anything bad, we can walk in peace where we are walking, continuing on that walk, without figuring what the consequences are. Revelation chapter 3, verse 8, tells about the church of Philadelphia that was put in front of an open door that nobody could shut except the Lord. 
That is that story about the situation back in 1844. Now you think, thought about that the first thing the Lord meets or let permit to come to the Adventist church is disappointment. Isn't it strange? It's a strange way of working. He raised up a movement and then he meets it with a disappointment. And that disappointment nearly took all the movement away because they could not bear it. They could not figure out what was the reason for that. So most of them left back to the old churches where they came from because there was a, a peaceful sitting. There I could sit without being worried. But now I am in a situation I cannot, I cannot figure out. So I'm worried, I'm afraid, and I don't dare to move forward. So I better get back to where I came from and sit down and let the war, war, Lord do something. Is that the experience in your life? You're in big danger. But you're, because you're trying to walk by sight and not in faith. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, talks about what's going to happen to that movement he started up. And still the Lord does not put a glorious way in front of them. He says, two things might happen to you. Isn't that a strange thing to, ha to say to a little group that has just been rescued from a disappointment? And then he meets them once more and then he says, you are Laodicea. You might either be speed out, is that the word? Spewed out. Or you might go in. Some of us have forgotten that sentence. Some of us thought that when the movement was started and the disappointment was over, no more disappointment was to come. It was just going forward and forward and forward. No, there was still a choice. And some of us then run ahead of the Lord and say, well, we better get one of the sides spewed out. But still, that's not our, our, our point. We just have to keep on walking and make our choices. The Lord will take care of the rest. And he will spew somebody out. The SDA movement is a movement in the real sense. It doesn't have other names. It will never get other names. The SDA movement is not an organization. It is a movement in the sense of moving ahead in present truth. It is progression. Therefore, the quotation from five testimonies that we were in before five testimonies seven one I don't need to find it now it says religion is a question of progress when you ask the, the Pope or the other normal nominal churches today the ecumenical movement 
they say religion is a question of salvation. We don't say that in Adventism. Seven-day Adventism doesn't talk about saved here. It, takes about a life, it talks about a life in progression towards, or as, as Paul says in Romans 1.17, unto salvation. We are walking on the road to heaven where the Lord is doing things for us all the way through. And thank you, thank him that we don't know what he'll do tomorrow. You remember the little text in, in, in the Gospels? Worry about the day and leave the rest for tomorrow. Isn't the day enough for you? For me it is enough. Have you noticed that there is a progress in the three angels' messages? Some of us have forgotten that there is progress in Seventh-day Adventism. Some of us think that the light we have is the same light all through. In some senses it is. But you must never stop there. The light, the, the thing that was right yesterday might not be enough for you tomorrow. It is still right, but it might not be enough for you. We still walk, need to walk upwards in experience and knowledge. The progress in the three angels' messages, messages number one, is the message. Message number two, second angel, is the warning. And the third angel's message is the choice. That's a simple way of putting the, th three, the three angels' messages. A message, a warning, and a choice. Ellen D. White is commenting on that. And she says in 7 BC 7971, the first and the second angel's message was to be proclaimed, but no further light was to be revealed before these messages had done their specific work. You have to understand the message, to live the message, you have to take heed of the warning in your life, in your practical doings, in your church life, in your personal life, before you actually is able to choose. The two first must do a specific work in you, in the church, in the congregation, in your fellowship, before the third can work. There is no further light given before the next one. Progress. A few quotations about progress. The course of God is constantly progressing. We must obey the command and go forward. That was what counted to parents, page 537. Now comes Advent Review, uh, 010586. 
Those who walk in the light will progress. They will grow up to the full stature of man and woman in Jesus Christ. No one will be condemned in the day of judgment because of lack of knowledge, which he never had an opportunity to obtain. He would not receive, but he will be condemned if he not receive the truth that was given to save him. The greater life, like the greater obligations. And that will review again, 10, 11, 92. As God gives us light, we should make use of it. God will not give us a second ray while the first is not appreciated. Do you see the progress in Adventism? Do you see the faults in trying to find back to historic things? We are seven-day Adventists moving towards a place that we know but we don't know the way to that place. But the Lord knows, and I can trust him in that. If we keep to that message, to the message of the seven-day Adventist, if we keep to his warnings, he will give, give us light after light. But don't be shocked, and don't move away from that light. And don't try to figure out the consequences or longing back to where you came from. There is no way back and then still keeping the hands of the Lord. There's only a way forward. And the Lord has promised to take us there. And I believe he will take us there. We are walking on water. We are not standing on water. Leave all the conservatives behind you and get into progression. Progression of the light where the Lord leads. Do you understand the, name, the thing from Revelation chapter 14 more clearly now? Here are those who are following the land where it leads. May the Lord help you. May him protect you and bless you and be faithful, and be good with each other. Yeah. Let us uh, sing a hymn that is very suited to the message we've just heard. Is hymn number 519, He Leadeth Me.
Heavenly Father in heaven, we thank you that you have called us. Now we ask you to keep us in that calling. We ask you to guide us all the way and make us willing to be willing. We ask to, for a blessing for all the people that today are gathering around your word. Give them a glimpse of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>